We are going to be skipping again. Last week we skipped uh, uh, into the next book, um, and now we're going to skip forward several books and about uh, somewhere between four and five hundred years worth of history as we look now at this last covenant before Jesus fulfills all these covenants. And so, so 2 Samuel 7 is where we're going to be at. Let me just kind of, I want to set the stage because not all of you have been here through the whole series and, and, and really to have this flow and the progression in our minds I think will be helpful. So we start all the way back in Genesis and, and in it we see God establish or inaugurate a, a, convi- a covenant between him and his creation with Adam as the, as the representative, as the head of that covenant. So he's representing um, uh, uh, all of creation and really all of humanity. Uh, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God then promises that he's going to, by the seed of the woman, deliver, provide victory over the, um, over the enemy and restore peace to what's broken. He's going to make right what we've made wrong, right? So he makes that promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15. Fast forward and sin doesn't get better. It's not like, oh, God made a promise and now people shape up. No, it actually gets worse to the point that God floods the world, kills everyone except for Noah and his family. They come out of the ark and God enters into covenant with them. And what we found was it's a reaffirmation. It's not a brand new covenant. It's essentially the same covenant that he made with Adam but reaffirmed, and now, in light of sin, slightly different, but still reaffirmed. God makes a covenant with all of creation that as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, winter and summer, that God is going to maintain the earth. He's going to preserve the earth so that the earth can support life. And so he makes that covenant, he makes that promise in all of creation, not just... Not just um, a chosen people, not just a few people out of all that have ever lived, but all of creation, every animal, every living creature has the hope of that promise that God, as long as the earth endures, as long as God's plan until he brings everything to fulfillment, God will ensure that the earth will preserve life. So then we fast forward and we see, we see him begin to interact with a man named Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And as he makes this covenant, he promises Abraham Children, offspring, as many as the stars in the sky. At one point, he uses the illustration. Another time, the, 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 the sand on the seashore. Um, and, and so he promises him children. He promises him land to live in. He promises him blessing. So much blessing that he's going to expect Abraham to be a blessing to others. In fact, he's going to hold him accountable to it. Now, to, to this point, we think, oh, man, this is, this is not going so good. Because Adam, the first covenant partner... He's not really faithful in the covenant, and so the covenant seems to fall apart. Noah's not faithful in the covenant. As soon as he comes out of the ark and he makes the covenant, then pretty soon he's drunk in a tent, and his sons are, are, are looking at him naked, and, or at least one of them is, and now he's going out and talking about it, and, and his sin then is, it, it brings curse, and so uh, brings a curse. Then we come to Abraham, and, and Abraham is counted righteous based on faith, but his faith isn't really that strong in the beginning. He's stumbling and... And, and messing up and, and, and having problems, but God's, God deals with Abraham in, an, in a different way in that he says, look, Abraham, I'm going to ensure this covenant by myself. I'm going to ensure this covenant is upheld. And so when the covenant is established, he puts Abraham to sleep. God himself moves between the, uh, walks between the animals that are laid out to, to represent the blood of that covenant. 
um, and he takes it upon himself. And so we see that happen, and it seems, that at least in, in the story of Abraham, that, that things are going to work out a little better. Abraham actually, by the end of his life, is unwilling even to withhold the child of promise, which was Isaac. And God says, sacrifice this child, and, and Abraham's like, okay, and he goes to do it. And God tells him on the mountain, because you've not withheld from me, I'm not going to withhold from you. I will provide. And so he's looking forward to the future of of another son that will be provided, uh, already beginning to to push us to look into the future of a promised son, a promised offspring that God is going to ensure comes to be. And from there, we jumped from Abraham then to Moses and Israel. These were descendants of Abraham. They were people who were born of this line. So they were inheritors. They were beneficiaries of the the covenant with Abraham. They were going to have a land to live in. They were going to have the blessings of God. They were going to have these things, not because of who Israel was in and of themselves, but because God promised Abraham he would do this. So as as they're... enjoying the the blessings of God. They're led into Egypt, which leads them to slavery, 400 years or so. And then under that slavery, they begin to be oppressed. They Well, I guess in any slavery, you're probably oppressed. They're, They're feeling the weight of it. They're crying out to God, and God delivers them through Moses. And these people who were already in covenant with God are set aside to enjoy a distinct and separate covenant from God. And he meets them at Mount Sinai, and we studied this over the last couple of weeks. He meets them at Mount Sinai and enters into covenant with them and tells them, if you will do these things, if you will be my people, I will be your God. If you will obey my commands, if you will do the things that I call you to do in this covenant, I will be your God. You will be my treasured possession. You will be blessed. You will know me. I will, I will set you apart from all other nations, and I will treat you as a royal priesthood. And so, so anyway, there's this covenant that he makes with them, a law that he gives them, and it sounds great, but they don't even make it out of the first generation before they break the covenant. Over and over and over, we see these covenant partners of God. We see them failing. So we end, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible end And there is a promise of deliverance. There's a promise of one to come defeat the enemy, a promise of one who's going to bring rest, a promise of one who's going to bring blessing, a promise of one who's going to make right what we've made wrong. But every covenant head, every covenant leader, all of the covenant people continue to fail. And we're left waiting. We're left wanting. And even the, gener- even the generation of Israelites that go into the land and take the land, even they failed. And so we have the book of Judges that follows. Deuter- so, so we have uh, um, Exodus into Leviticus. Numbers is the, is, the, is the book that tells us about them getting up and leaving Sinai and going uh, towards the promised land. And it tells us how the first generation refused to go in and take the land as God had directed them to. Uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so, so we get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we get to Deuteronomy, and, and the people are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and at the very end of the book, they are staged at the river. They are ready to take the land, and we're left there wondering, will they take the land? And the next book, Joshua, tells us the story of how, how God uses Joshua, another covenant representative, kind of a, a, another Moses. Moses is 
um, uh, replacement after his death. And Joshua leads them in, and it looks like everything's going to work out great. But they denied the covenant. They entered into covenants with people in the land. They didn't do all that God had told them to do. And pretty soon we have the book of Judges tell us over and over and over about the failures of God's covenant people. And they're led into captivity and he delivers them with judges and he rules them with judges. And that brings us then to Samuel. Samuel is the last, the last judge of Israel. He serves as a prophet. He serves as a, a priest in many ways, but he is a judge. He is there to lead and tell Israel what God would have them to do. And the people come to him and say, Samuel, we want a king. Now, God has established a people. He has established a law. He has set himself up as king. And these people, want, they want a king like every other nation has. And Samuel is bothered by this. And he goes to God with it. And God says this, 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say for you and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So once again, God's people reject the covenant. They reject his blessing. They fail in their expectation. They, they are not faithful to the covenant. They are not a people who would walk with God. And so the people pick Saul. God allows it. Saul turns out not to be a great king. Maybe politically he was a great king. There was things that he did and things that he accomplished and, and battles that he won. But Saul was not faithful to God. He did not represent or reflect God's character among the people. And eventually he would turn away from God's leading, God's speaking, and would turn to witchcraft, to a necromancer, that he would seek the the knowledge of the dead, of the wicked, instead of God. Seems that this king that these people have picked has only led them to greater trouble. But God still has a plan. Over and over, we've come to this place, and I've wanted you to see this, and I continue to say it, and I hope it'll be where we land at the end of this sermon today. Over and over and over, generation after generation, even moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance in your own life, God looks for you to trust him. We see the failure over and over and over and over. We see that this is not where these people are not able to do this. They are failing at every turn. Well, we're going to come to a covenant today, the, the final covenant in the Old Testament before God is going to finally fulfill all that he's promised to do. It's so important that we see this covenant that he makes with David. So we're going to pick it up in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses. We'll pray, and then we're going to kind of get ourselves into where things are at and see God work. So let's read 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, that's David, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up out of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, where with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Let's just stop and pray. and Take a, take a moment and consider that. Father, help us now, I pray. This is your word. And I know there's plenty of things I'll say and things that I will point out, but God, if your spirit is not with us today, I am reminded more than ever in this sermon that there is nothing I can do in and of myself to do anything for you. So Father, would you work? Would you move by the power of your hand and by the power of your spirit? Will you move upon us and keep building your house? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, so God had built David. He'd made David what he was, and now David wants to build God a house, right? He wants to build for God. He wants to do something for God. We all kind of understand that, right? Like, who doesn't have some sense of what that is? Look at what God's done for me. I want to give my life to him. I want to do all these things for him. I want my life to count for him. We try to go and do big, noble things in, in, in God's name. Who, who doesn't have some sense of what David's dealing with? He's arrived. There's, there's peace. He's got, a, he's got a palace he's living in. He's got his, it says that he'd given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. David, in a sense, has arrived. Right? Life is pretty good. Kicked back in his palace, enjoying the, the easy life. And he gets to thinking, wow, man, I've got it pretty good here. Nathan, Nathan was his prophet, a prophet that worked closely with him. Nathan, you know what? I want to build a house for God. Look at what God's done for me. I want to do this thing. And Nathan's like, hey, you know, that's a pretty good idea. You do it. God's with you. And so I don't, as we're about to do, as we're about to get into this, I don't want us to just get down on David because he wants to do a good thing for God. Right? I I don't want us to to think that, oh, David was off his rocker. What? No, he's... He's seeking to live gratefully. He's seeking to, seeking to do a thing that is, is, I think, with the best of intention. But it's not God's plan. So God shows up and he's like, David, you were a shepherd. Now you're a king. I'm the one who did that. Did, did I ever ask of you to build a house? Have I ever asked of any one of my people? I've had all these judges before you. Have I ever asked anyone to build me a house? And though I think it was, you know, with the best of intention, I I think God's gently rebuking. Is this what I've asked of you? Is this what I expect of you? Is this the thing that I've called you to as I anointed you king? Remember who David is. He's the king of Israel. He is in the line of Abraham. So he is a covenant person of God in the line of Abraham. He has all the blessings. In fact, if you follow his lineage, he comes through the son Judah, who comes through Isaac. So Abraham, Isaac to Jacob, through Judah, now to Abraham. Abraham has all the hope of that covenant for him. And he has all the expectation that came with that covenant. Walk before me and be blameless. He is a son of of, of Israel. He, He is a citizen of this nation. He's a member of that covenant. 
He's got a law he's to abide by. And we looked at it last week. What did God expect in the law? What did he expect of his covenant partner? To devote themselves to his glory. To entrust themselves to his power. And to obey his authority. That's what he called them to. And we, we, those are big headings that we looked at last week. And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like to, to see it break out. But that's the things that he was calling them to. Trust me. Devote yourself to my glory and obey those things that I've called you to obey. That's the, that's the standard. That was the expectation. So, so David, did I ever ask anybody in this covenant to build me a house? I just want your devotion to my glory. I just want you to entrust yourself to my power. I just want you to... And you could say, oh, well, you know, it's not outside of devoting yourself to God's glory to, to build a house or to, to build a temple. No, it's not. But what God's letting him know, I've got another plan. Here's a lesson for us. It's a hard one to learn. God's will is always better than your will. God's plan will always, and it's right always, for it to supersede our plan. That's a hard lesson to learn. I don't like my circumstances sometimes, but God has me there for a reason. What does he expect of me in that season? I don't like the, the circumstances that surround us much of the time, but God didn't tell me to go out and succeed at conforming all of that to his likeness, did he? What did he call us to? What did he call me to? Trust myself to his power. Devote myself to his glory. Live in obedience to his authority. The thing is, it doesn't look a lot different today. At least his expectation of his covenant partners doesn't look a lot different today than it did back then. So let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. So 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 11. <clears throat> now, therefore, let's just pick it up for the context. So, so Nathan, Nathan comes, he, 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 or, or God goes to Nathan, shows up, says, hey, say this to David. And then he picks up and it says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord, I'm sorry, yeah, more, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. We're going to pick that up in just a second and, and finish off. So, so here's what happens. So, so Nathan comes to David. He's like, David, hey, God spoke, and, and, and you're not supposed to build him a house, but listen to what he says. God, God has built you. He has made you who you are. You are now a king. He's taken you out of, the, out, of, out of the sheep fields and he's led you through this process of your life and he, and he replaced the king that the people have chosen with you. He anointed you as king and now he's with you as king 
And he is going to make some promises to you. God built David and God wasn't finished building. He promised David, God promised David a great name. You know, it's clear what he's meaning. He's like, David, I'm going to make you remembered. I'm going I'm to make you stand out from, from all the people of history. I'm going to make you stand out. And we still talk about him today. But he is one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever known. He was renowned in his era. In fact, if you, if you read on in the, in the book of 2 Samuel, the immediate following passage, 2 Samuel chapter 8, the author, he, he clearly places 2 Samuel 8 immediately after this covenant because it shows all of David's victories. It shows the greatness of the name, that he, the, the greatness of his name and who he became in front of the world in which he lived. But it's also reminiscent. It's reminiscent of the promise that he'd made Abraham. You remember what he told Abraham? I'm going to make your name great. See, this is that same the same promise carrying forward, David, I'm going to do for you what I did for your father. I'm going to make, your, I'm going to make you mem- memorable. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to use you for great things. Who's going to do this? God's going to do this. God promised David a place for Israel. Again, reminiscent of God's promise to Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations, of a multitude of nations. And I'm going to give them a land to dwell in. I'm going to give them this land. And, and as he's standing on a, I picture it on a hillside with Lot. And Lot picks the land that he's going to go off into. It's lush and green. And, and Abraham's left with this land. And after Lot goes off, he's standing with God. And, and God says, Abraham, look to your left and to your right. To the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. Look, everywhere your eye lands, it is yours. I'm giving it to you and to your offspring. I'm giving it all to you. And again, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see David's victories. We see him securing the land. But as the chapter opened, we're reminded that, the, that, that, that here is David, and he is given rest from all his surrounding enemies. As the representative of Israel, as God's representative before this people, as, his, as the king of these people, God is saying, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to secure this nation. So it's, it's reminiscent of Abraham. It's reminiscent of Israel. He had repeated that, that promise to them. And he also promises him rest from his enemies. We've seen that. We've, we've read it. We, we, you, you can see it in 2 Samuel chapter 8 again. Victory after victory after victory. And then it comes to the very end of verse 11. And God says, I'm going to build you. A house. And there's a play on the word there, right? So David, in his mind, as he's saying, hey, let's build God a house, he's thinking a temple, like his palace, something grand, and this big grand gesture to set out for God to say, look, this is, this is the house in which our God dwells and stays. And God's like, David, I don't need you to build me a house. But for me to do my work, I'm going to build you one. For me to complete the work I've started, I'm going to build you one. And, and when God's talking about a house, he's talking about a, a, a dynasty, a lineage, a, a line of promised sons. And God would do for David something much greater than David could ever do for God or for himself. And as the story unfolds, what we're see, going to see that God intends to do 
is fulfill every covenant promise he's made all the way back to Genesis. David had no idea of what God was capable of. Probably isn't even fully fathoming what God is intending, even as he's hearing the words. He keeps going. Pick it up in verse 12. So God says, I'm going to build you a house. And in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So God bound himself in covenant to David in that, that in the same way that God had made David who he was, God would build his own eternal house through David's son. God bound himself in covenant to David that in the same way that God had made David who he was, God would build his own eternal house through David's son. God wasn't doing a work that would only last just a few years. He was doing something that would be eternal, that would last forever through his promised son. Now, this was a covenant. This is clearly God making promises and entering into a binding agreement and a binding relationship. As you, as you remember, that's the way we've been defining covenant. And, and even though the word isn't used in this passage, even though the word's not there and there's no clear ceremony being laid out like the one with Abraham cutting the animals and God walking through them, or the Israelites standing before the mountain and God <clears throat> speaking from the mountain and Moses and, and, and people from the tribes of Israel sacrificing these bulls and the blood being poured into the, to the altar that he built. And some sprinkled on the altar and some sprinkled on the people. Even though there's not a ceremony here. The scriptures clearly present this as a covenant agreement. A covenant relationship. And we see it in places like Psalm 89, 3-4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. I have made a covenant, God has said. With my chosen one, God has said. Who is that? That My servant David is who it is. And though it's often said to be an unconditional covenant in which God is going to ensure it's it's going to be carried out, the scriptures also demonstrate that there is strong condition with it. In Psalm 132, verses 11 through 12, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. He is going to ensure this covenant is fulfilled. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant. You hear that? Very reminiscent of the conditional stages or steps or conditional requirements that he put on Israel. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So God enters into, God comes to David, who, who's got a good idea. Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I've got it pretty easy now. Let's build a house. And God says, I'm not done with you. You haven't arrived, David. This plan that you've devised, although maybe with the best of intentions, it's just because you don't know all that I intend to do. 
You can't see my plan from start to finish. I'm going to build a house for you. In fact, your house that I'm building through your sons is going to be an eternal house for me. God bound himself in covenant to David that in the same way that God had made David who he was, God would build his own eternal house through David's son. So God promised David a son who would build that house. We see that at the end of chapter or at the end of verse 11. I'm going to build you a house and immediately picking up in verse 12 when your days are fulfilled, after you're done, after you're dead, when you've got no power left to do and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promised David a son who would build God's house. Now immediately, Obviously, if you have any familiarity with the scripture, you're thinking, well, that's Solomon. Solomon's going to be born, He's gonna, not under great circumstances, but God's going to, to use Solomon, and Solomon's going to be the next king, and Solomon's going to build a temple. The problem with that is, how long did that temple stand? About 400 years. That doesn't sound like forever. And in, 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 the, in the scheme of man, that's a long time. I mean, I, w- I went to France a few years ago and I was impressed of the, the history of France because there's buildings there that were there. They, they were standing there. In fact, there was one church, in the, one building that they used as a church. It was standing in the middle of a square and the, and the report or the, the plaque on the outside of it said that, that the door was the original door. It's a big, thick, wooden door that's been there for something like 1,500 years or something like that. Now, that's amazing to me. Because there are not many places you go here and see buildings that old or doors that old. It's pretty amazing. But that's still not forever. This is a house that's going to stand forever. And so, so, so what, what's he referring to? Well, with the, with the help of the New Testament, we can see that though, that though Solomon was a type to come, that he was, a, he was a shadow of the one that would actually fulfill this, there was one who was to fulfill it. His name is Jesus. Paul refers to the church that Jesus was building as God's house. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, he tells us that, that we're a house that God will dwell in. Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, Two through five, as he's talking about coming to Christ, he says that we're being built together in a spiritual house, as if we're bricks being laid in the walls of this house so that God dwells in and among us. But it's the writer of Hebrews, I think, who who seeks over and over through the whole letter of the book of Hebrews to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So though Solomon would build a temple that would stand for about 400 years, Jesus would build a house that would stand forever. God promised David a son who would reign forever. Now, obviously, that's not Solomon. Solomon lived and he died. Now, I don't know where his body is now. It's probably rotted into the gate to the point that you can only go to the place where people dreamed that he was buried. But he didn't live forever. It's another way that people have taken this and sought to interpret it, though. They, so, some people have said that, that what God was promising was that there would be a, 
a line of David's descendants, a line of sons that would fulfill this prophecy so that someone, not necessarily, some, not necessarily Solomon, but someone from David's line would always sit on the throne. But there's a problem with that. Because if you follow the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, you begin to see that these kings weren't all good. They didn't all live up to the expectations. And pretty soon Israel is led off into captivity. And then, well, after Solomon, immediately after Solomon, uh, the, the, the nation is split. So there's the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Pretty soon Israel is left, left off into uh, captivity. And then eventually so is Judah. So that by the time of Christ, there is no king sitting on that throne. In fact, they were living and hoping for the one to come. But the prophets understood this. They got it. In fact, in fact, if you look at like the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these things, they were preaching and proclaiming the hope of the coming Savior, the one who was going to come and take the throne back and be the king. It's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees at Jesus' time wanted him to be the king because they were looking for a king. They were looking for the fulfillment of this promise to David. God promised David a son who would reign forever. But the prophets understood that the problem was not God's side of the covenant, but theirs. Hosea 3, 4, Hosea writes, and, and, and he is used with, with um, his life is an illustration of what God has done. God tells him to, to go after his prostitute wife, his adulterous wife, in the same way that he's gone after Israel. But he prophesies, Hosea 3, 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. They are going to live without any of the things that God had promised them because of their sin. But Jesus' throne is eternal. Again, the author of Hebrews writes, Hebrews 1.8, but the Son, he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, your throne, O God, just even, even that, that, the tying together. This, so, so the son, in, in Hebrews 1, he's setting Jesus out as the son. He comes down, the son, he says, your throne, O God. This is a divine son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. God promised David a son who would reign forever, and in Jesus Christ, he provided it. God promised David a son who would be a son to God. And again, we could look at Solomon and we could look at the other kings and we could see that, 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 that in a sense there was a way in which God would treat them as sons. He certainly did with Solomon. He disciplined him is exactly what the word says here. When he commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him. I'm going to bring the stripes and he's going to use the external forces of the world to do it. Though not a biological son in, in that sense, God did treat Solomon as a son, and he disciplined him as he sinned. In fact, you can read about it in 1 Kings 11. God raised up adversaries against him, two different adversaries specifically, to bring punishment and discipline to him. Well, that can't be Jesus because Jesus didn't sin. So how does that fit? Well, again, the author of Hebrews helps us. Without admitting that there was any sin in Jesus, without laying any blame on him, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. 
to all who obey him. He was the son, and he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus never sinned. He didn't, he didn't, need, to be, he didn't need to be repentant in any way. But as he grew, he was still disciplined, and he still faced hardship, and he still faced difficulty, and he still suffered. And that suffering led to perfection. Not perfection in the sense of sinlessness, that's the wrong definition of the word, but perfection in completion. See, Jesus could only say he was the Messiah if he would eventually and ultimately with, with, with uh, uh, man, the word has escaped my mind, sorry, resist sin to the point of death. None of us have done that. We would all rather live in this life than resist sin to the point of death. But Jesus faced temptation of every kind and never sinned to the point that he died unwilling to not devote himself to his Father's glory, to not live obedient to his Father's authority, and to not entrust himself to his Father's will. God affirmed Jesus, who was born of David, was his son. And he did it repeatedly. At the baptism, he says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration on the mountain, he, he says of Jesus, he speaks from the cloud, and he says of Jesus, This is my son. Listen to him. And he gives authority in that, right? Like it's, it's listen to him. I'm, I'm pleased with him. He's all I want him to be. And, and listen to him. He has my authority. This is what the kings were to do. They were to represent and reflect God. They were to exercise his authority and, and mediate between God and his people. And time and time again, the kings of Israel failed. And as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we're left with these promises. What are we going to do with all these promises? God has promised an offspring that will defeat our enemy, that will restore peace, that will right what we've wronged. He's promised an offspring through whom all nations will be blessed. He's promised an offspring that will sit on an eternal throne. And to that point, no one, no one had faithfully lived in those covenants. But David heard these promises, and he believed one would come. And he responds as we all should. Then, verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, So he hears what God has to say. Hey, I want to build a house. No, you're not building a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he, and he takes that correction and that redirection. He goes in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. Oh, Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, oh, Lord God. Now, David doesn't know exactly what God's going to do, but he recognizes that this isn't just a promise for his household. That this is for everyone, for all mankind to hear and to know and to be instructed by. God is going to do this massive and eternal work that's going to be influential and helpful to to every person. And what more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all the greatness to make your servant know it. Even knowing it, even having revelation, even having understanding. I'm blessed by it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for this, there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel and the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever that the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. You just think about this. God has made this covenant. He's entered into this covenant and no one that he's entered into the covenant has lived up to the expectations. Abraham didn't walk before God and be blameless. He did some, he did some things. He got some things right, but... But all in all, David or Abraham was only righteous by his faith. Moses and Israel failed over and over and over again and didn't deserve to even be in the land. And the first king that Israel chose failed, and David is going to soon show us that he is going to fail. But God is promising a work that he is going to do, that he is going to establish that is eternal. And David responds like we all should respond. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David responds as we all should in worship, devoted to God's glory. Isn't that exactly what he expected of his people? It's about God's glory. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's not about doing something to to shine for him or by our own power, our own efforts to, to point to anyone to us. It's all about his glory. You shall have no other gods before me, right? I'm the only God, and David affirms that. He confirms it right here. And, and, and when he hears it, he doesn't, he doesn't get flustered and bothered, at least not so far as we know. He simply goes in and sits with the Lord. And prays to him and praises him. He finds courage because God has revealed his plan. He finds courage to pray these things and to praise God in the way he does. He responds in faith. He entrusts himself to his power. Who am I? What would I be if not for you? What hope would I have? What would the future look like if not for these promises? Where would my people be? What would happen to them if you weren't to do this thing? I'm giving myself into your power. I'm trusting myself to you. In fact, God, I'm going to be dead for much of what you're going to accomplish. How's it going to happen if you don't do it? He entrusts himself to God. He worships God. And then he commits himself to obedience to God. Obedience to his authority. 
He doesn't continue to seek to build a house. In fact, there is no temple built until Solomon. He doesn't even lay the first stone. He doesn't even try. He he stops. Solomon does that work. He listens to God and he obeys God. And in fact, in 2 Samuel 8, I've I've referred to it a number of times. You can walk through and read over and over the victories that God God does all this work in David's life. And and, and then as as we get to the end of the chapter, it says in chapter 8, verse 13, and David made for himself when he returned Oh, sorry, that's not the verse I want to read. Oh, man, I've lost the verse. It tells us that he rules with justice and equity, that he represents God, that he does the things that God has told him to do, that he serves as a good king or strives to. But he's going to fail along the way. See, he's about to be standing on top of that palace one day and seeing a woman that he longs for more than he longs for what's honorable and good, just and equitable. He's going to take that woman and he's going to eventually have her husband killed because her husband's more noble than he. He fails. And though he responded well and it sets us a good example, our hope is not to be placed in David. Because he's going to fail as a covenant partner. And we, like everyone else that comes to the end of the Old Testament, is going to be left in this place. What is God going to do? And we're primed and ready for the new covenant work that he does through his son, Jesus Christ. Which is going to fulfill every covenant promise he's made. So what will you do in light of God's work and God's word? How would you respond if, if God revealed to you his plan? Oh, wait, he has. We got about 66 books, lots of chapters, lots of verses. And then the Apostle Paul letting us, making it plain to us in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that specifically point out That God has revealed his plan to us, a mystery for the ages, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. He has. In Romans 8, we're told that his purpose in our lives, those that love him, who are called according to his purpose, that are predestined for adoption... That he has a purpose to conform us to the likeness of Christ. He's let you in on his plan. His plan is to restore the image that we lost in our sin. To make us look like Jesus. And if we look like Jesus, we look like God. He's restoring that image. He's let you in on that plan. What will you do? Will you worship like David worshipped? Devote yourself to his glory in everything. Lay down the plans for your life so that you can be devoted to the glory of God in this life? Will you entrust yourself to his power? That no matter what comes, no matter how bad life gets here on this earth, the the best thing that could ever happen to us is being brought to his presence face to face. Now, I'm not asking any of you run out, hurry up and get there. But in his time and in his way, is it really that bad a thing to lose our life here 
if when we open our eyes, we're in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we entrust ourselves to that level? Can we entrust ourselves to the things that seem harder than death? That there's a reality that, that we live in a world that's broken and fallen? And we live under authorities that are broken and fallen? We live in the midst of brokenness in our families and in our neighborhoods and Can we exercise that kind of faith in light of what God's revealed to us? Can we obey his authority? Can we obey as David obeyed, even if imperfectly, to seek to conform all of our life to the commands of God, to live according to what's true in his word, not what feels right in our heart? I... hmm. Boy, there's lots of things that feel right in my heart. And when I'm angry, I can guarantee you those, right, those things that feel right in my heart aren't right. And when I'm tempted, those things that feel right in my heart aren't right. And when I want my own way, those things I feel in my heart aren't right. But his word directs us. Can we obey, having, not knowing that he's got a plan for the fullness of time that's uniting all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, a mystery to be revealed that, that both Jews and Gentiles will be brought together as one people, his people forever, a house that Jesus is building that will stand forever, but that we are called to walk worthy of his calling, to set aside sins and weights, those things that entangle us, that keep us from running the race that he's placed before us. Can we? Obey as we've been called to obey. What are you going to do in light of God's revelation and his plan to build an eternal house? Whose glory are you going to devote yourself to? Whose power are you going to entrust yourself to? Whose commands are you going to obey? These are really the only responses God expects. He doesn't need your grand gestures going out and making up for where you've gone wrong. He just wants you to repent and devote yourself to his glory. He doesn't need your big works that prove yourself to God that that in some way you think, oh, look, God, look at what I've done for you. He just demands your faith. Trust him. He, He doesn't need you to do anything for him. But he calls you to obedience because he loves you and he knows what's good for you. So let's respond as we should. Let's pray.